In the late 1980s, Maria Rakana moved from London to Manchester for a fresh start. She went to live in a property in Upper Brook Street, just south of the city centre. After two years of living in the northwest, Maria was struggling. The 26-year-old mother of one was trapped in a crippling cycle of drug addiction and poverty. By the end of 1990, she had a £100 a day drug habit, funded largely through sex work. Maria, who also went by the first name Christina, had a regular patch where she worked, along Canal Street and Mental Street. She worked long nights in the dark and rain, often not finishing until 5 or 6am. Maria had been in trouble with the police for soliciting for sex in London, and she was well known to officers in Manchester for the same reason. Just a note, I have pronounced Maria's surname as Rakenna, as that seems to be the most prevalent pronunciation. The surname can also be pronounced Rakina. I've been unable to establish how Maria said her name. At 10.15pm on New Year's Day 1991, Maria was witnessed working on Minsel Street. This is the last official sighting of Maria, although it is thought she was seen several times over the next few days. One possible sighting of Maria was in the early hours of Thursday, January the 3rd. She was believed to be sitting in a brown-coloured Datsun or Cortina car at around 4am on Broadfield Road in Mossside. The car was being driven by an elderly driver, who witnesses described as West Indian. According to some reports, the car contained a total of three women. On the 6th of January, two 11-year-old boys were out fishing on Pennington Flash in Lee. This is a 170-acre lake, formed as the result of heavy mining. The lake is part of a nature reserve, which incorporates the surrounding marshland and attracts visitors all year round. It lies 28 kilometres east from Minsel Street, where Maria was seen on New Year's Day. As the boys stood on the bank chatting, waiting for the fish to bite, they noticed something large floating on the surface of the water. They investigated further and realised it was a large sheet of bed linen. It was a mattress cover, and wrapped inside were several plastic bags, the contents of which turned their stomachs and left an indelible mark on their young minds. It was the dismembered body of a woman, the remains of Maria Christina Rakenna. Maria's death is one of up to four unsolved murders in the county of Lancashire, that some journalists and cold case experts believe are linked. These attacks could be the crimes of a killer referred to in the press as the East Lancashire Ripper. it's John here. Just a quick message to say thank you for listening over the last 12 months and for the encouraging reviews you have written. I really appreciate them. A special thank you to my wife Emma who is a fantastic proofreader and always reads over my scripts and listens to my final edit to make sure I'm making sense. I know this can be a difficult time for some people so I hope you are all able to find peace over the festive season. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Nadolly Flowen, a blithen now with that. A friend of Maria, who was the last person to see her alive on New Year's Day, was able to confirm the identification. Police said 26-year-old Maria had been strangled and the body had not been in the water for longer than 24 hours. 
when she was last seen, she had been wearing a dark blue or black three-quarter length anorak with a drawstring hem, a miniskirt and a floral patterned beige and pink round neck pullover. Maria was found naked and her clothes have never been recovered. Her body had been dismembered with power tools or a chainsaw. The body parts had been placed inside five plastic bags, with one bag containing just the head. The mattress cover that the bags were placed inside was found to have a numbered laundry mark printed on it, which measured just over one centimetre and read 08230. Extensive inquiries were carried out and dozens of local sex workers were spoken to. People who knew Maria were asked to come forward and police assured the public that all conversations would be treated with the utmost delicacy. Confidentiality was assured. Sex workers who worked near the Manchester Chalton bus station over Christmas were specifically asked if they remembered seeing Maria in the area over the festive period. Detective Superintendent John Smith, who led the investigation, told local sex workers to be wary and said the person responsible may strike again. As a result, some of the women did start taking extra precautions, such as taking down registration numbers of cars seen in the area. The women who worked in the Manchester Red Light District were deeply affected by what had happened to Maria and organised a collection to pay for her funeral expenses. Several witnesses came forward to detail suspicious behaviour at Pennington Flash during the evening before Maria's body was discovered. A couple said at 7.40pm on the evening of Saturday 5th of January they had been driving along Slag Lane which runs close to Pennington Flash. The witnesses saw a white van reversing into the car park. The van had two men in the front cab and the driver of the vehicle was wearing a peaked cap. At around the same time, three other people saw a van reversing twice into the car park at Pennington Flash to avoid passing traffic. The witnesses were on the way to Slag Lane Tip to dispose of some rubbish. When they arrived at the tip, they saw the van drive off at speed, away from the lake, without its headlights on. The police asked the van driver to come forward, saying that the van may not have been involved and could have been attempting to dispose of rubbish illegally, or perhaps even a couple looking for some alone time. In another report, at midnight that night, a couple in a car saw a Datsun Cherry car parked in the Pennington Flash car park. It struck them as odd, because the car was stationary but had its headlights on. Police began to look into Maria's life in the weeks leading up to her murder. From their conversations, they learnt that on Christmas Eve, just a week or so before she was last seen, Maria had confided in a friend that she was fed up with life in Manchester. Maria told the friend that she had plans to go and stay with a woman in Lees, which is in Greater Manchester, or possibly Leeds. The friend did not catch clearly what Maria had said. Maria did not tell the friend the name of the woman she planned on staying with. Whether Maria visited this woman is unclear, but she was definitely in Manchester on Friday 28th of December. She went to a local newsagent's early in the morning after she had finished work to buy a bag of crisps. She also bought a Kit Kat, which she fed to the newsagent's dog. These visits were a regular part of Maria's routine, but she did not return to the newsagent's after the 28th of December. Police did not know why Maria had been murdered, but speculated it may have been the result of an argument with a client or possibly a dispute with a drug dealer. In a cruel twist of fate, Maria had featured in a documentary film not long before she was murdered, discussing the dangers of sex work. She talked to camera about the threats of rape and mugging while out on the streets, 
Maria even mentioned the risk of being murdered as a very real possibility doing the work she engaged in. The extremely violent way Maria had been killed immediately sparked comparisons with another unsolved murder of a woman two years previously. Linda Suzanne Donaldson lived in Toxteth, Liverpool and was a sex worker. The 31-year-old's body was found behind a hedge in a farmer's field off Winnock Lane, Loughton, near Lee, on October 18, 1988. She had been reported missing by her flatmate just hours previously. Linda had been stabbed multiple times and her body had been mutilated. When Maria Rakana's body was found, three years later, and just 3.2 kilometres away, it appeared the cases could be connected. Linda Donaldson was well liked by her friends and other sex workers in the area. She was described by people who knew her on the BBC's Crime Watch programme in December 1988 as a caring person. Like Maria, Linda had spoken in front of cameras about the harsh realities of being a sex worker. In 1987, she appeared on an episode of the morning TV show Kilroy to share her experience of working on the streets. Linda used the name Tracy when she was at work. Like Maria, Linda was a venerable person. Linda's mother had been only 15 when she gave birth to her. Her father was from another country and they had never met. Linda was brought up by her grandmother and only found out the identity of her mother much later in life. At the time of her death, Linda did not have any contact with her mother. Linda married young, at only 18 years old, but the relationship did not last and she soon found herself divorced. At 21, Linda moved to a flat in Waterloo with a boyfriend and the couple briefly moved to Holland and lived in a commune. Linda returned to Liverpool and fell into taking drugs. It wasn't long before she became addicted to heroin. Sex work on the streets of Liverpool was the only option available to her to cover the cost of her escalating drug problem. In the months leading up to her murder, Linda was said to be looking unwell, with a thin and sickly appearance. At 7pm on the evening of Monday, October 17, 1988, Linda was witnessed working in her usual spot, on the corner of Canning and Catherine Street in Liverpool. She was wearing all black, as was her habit when working, and a pair of distinctive earrings, which had two gold leaves on each one. She also wore a gold ring, shaped like a snake. At 10pm, Linda bought some food items from a local shop and then returned to her flat on Canning Street to feed her three cats and a dog. All the animals had been strays and Linda and her flatmate had rescued them from the streets. At 11pm, two police officers who knew Linda saw her working on Canning Street. At 11.30pm, another sex worker, standing on Canning Street, refused a potential client because he made her feel uneasy. He carried a tool bag with him and the clanging of the metal items unsettled her. The man was around 5 feet 11 or 180 centimetres and in his late 20s and wore a white polo neck jumper. Any fit of this person was released by police. A different sex worker reported another man who had twice approached Linda over the course of the evening. The second occasion was at around midnight. Linda was known to be careful when accepting clients. Both times the man approached Linda, she did not go with him and nothing happened between them. This man looked between 42 and 45 years old. He was tall at around 6 foot or 6 foot 2, or 183 to 188 centimetres. He had a thin build and wore square-framed, gold-rimmed glasses 
and a silver watch on his left wrist. The man had a long face and dimples when he smiled. His hair was mid-brown and slightly greying. It was parted to the right and brushed back off his face. The witness thought it could have been a wig. His general presentation was untidy. At around 1.30am, this sex worker bumped into Linda. It had been a slow night for both of them. The friend decided to call it a night and hailed a taxi to take her home. As the woman got into the taxi, she saw a dark-coloured car pull into the back of Canning Street. Linda walked towards the car. This was the last time anyone saw Linda alive. The next day, an older couple from Wales were travelling to see relatives in the north of England when they pulled off the M6 motorway at Junction 22. They stopped in a lay-by on Winwick Lane to have a break and stretch their legs. Winwick Lane connects the M6 with the A580 East Lanks Road. In the field next to the lay-by, the couple stumbled upon Linda's body. It had not been buried, but had been placed behind the hedge. No other attempt had been made to conceal it. Linda was found naked. She was last seen wearing a black jacket with studded belt, black miniskirt and boots. As in Maria's case, these have never been found. Her earrings and ring were missing, as well as her handbag and a white address book which she carried everywhere. Police believe the address book was key and could well contain the name of the killer. Forensic investigators determined that Linda's body had been washed down before being placed in the field. The extent of Linda's injuries were revealed by police. Detective Superintendent Ken Clark, who led the investigation, said Linda had been stabbed twice in the back. Eight additional knife wounds were found across the body, all of which were carried out after death. Her breasts were missing, and an attempt had been made to decapitate her. The weapon used had been a heavy knife, with a blade at least 20 centimetres long. Police were not sure where Linda had been murdered, but said it had not been where she was found. Wherever it was, they said the killer must have had plenty of space and light. Police also added that more than one person may have been involved in the attack on Linda. It's not clear what made them think this. A maroon-coloured Ford Granada Mark II was seen in the same lay-by where the older couple had parked at 5.45am on the day the body was found. Witnesses said the car was there for at least an hour. Police believed this was the killer's car and that the interior would have been heavily bloodstained. It is often said that earlier on the night that Linda was murdered, a dramatisation about Jack the Ripper was broadcast on television and may have inspired the killer. Researching this case, I found that the programme actually aired on the evening of October 18th, 1988, the day Linda's body was found. However, it was a two-part drama, and the first part had aired the previous Tuesday. The miniseries starred Michael Caine and Jane Seymour, and was made to coincide with the 100-year anniversary of the infamous Whitechapel murders. Due to the manner of the wounds inflicted on Linda, it does seem the timing could be more than a coincidence. At the time, police speculated regarding whether the TV drama may have been a trigger for the murder. The investigation was a joint operation between Liverpool and Greater Manchester Police Forces. 250 police staff were placed on the case. Altogether, detectives spoke to 10,000 people and checked 6,000 cars. 415 curb crawlers known to frequent the Liverpool Red Light District were questioned and over 100 clients of Linda were identified. Police theorised that Linda may have been killed by one of her regular clients 
so they attempted to check as many of these as possible. Not all of them were able to be traced. Unfortunately, inquiries were hampered by the fact that many of the men came from outside Liverpool and the nature of their visits to the city made them reluctant to come forward. Press reports detailed two regular clients in particular the police wanted to locate. Both were reported to be businessmen. One saw Linda every Tuesday and the other on Thursdays. One of them was said to drive a Jaguar XJS. Police said they believed they knew who these people were but wanted them to come forward of their own volition. It's not clear if they were ever found. In the early days of the investigation, the police appealed for two men who were called into the Liverpool Echo on October 24, 1988, were said to be of Chinese origin, to come forward. They were seen walking along Canning Street just before Linda was last seen. It was thought they may have seen something that could help. It appears these men were never traced. In the first couple of months of the investigation, two local individuals were arrested and questioned. A teenager was arrested in Liverpool Magistrates Court at the beginning of November 1988. He had been charged for another offence shortly beforehand and then released on bail. A woman who was with him was said to have fainted when the police placed him in handcuffs. He was released without charge. A 54-year-old man was arrested on November 30, 1988, but likewise was soon released without charge. A man was interviewed about Linda's murder after he was suspected of killing 42-year-old Sheila Ingham. She was strangled and found in her car on January 26, 1989. Nothing came of this regarding Linda's case, and Sheila Ingham's murder also remains unsolved. I could find very little information about this murder. Much of the press and TV coverage of Linda's murder focused on her being a sex worker. I found a letter that the Transport and General Workers Union delegates to the Liverpool District Labour Party wrote to the Liverpool Echo. They said that they had been appalled by the callous and offensive way that the emphasis had been placed on what Linda did to make money, rather than the fact that a young woman had been murdered. This attitude is still prevalent in the modern reporting of similar cases. At the time and since, police have said there is no forensic evidence linking the murders of Linda Donaldson and Maria Rakenna. There are, however, obvious similarities. Linda and Maria were both sex workers, on the streets of Liverpool and Manchester respectively. These locations are separated by just 50 kilometres and are linked by the A580 or East Lancashire Road. The women worked opposite ends of that road but were dumped halfway in between both cities. Both bodies were found in Lee and both locations are accessible from the A580. Another link is that the bodies of Linda and Maria had both been mutilated. In episode 39 of Persons Unknown, about Julie Pacey's unsolved murder, I mentioned Operation Enigma. In 1996, Operation Enigma was established by the Crime Committee of the Association of Chief Police Officers and coordinated by the National Crime Facility at Brams Hill, a police training college in Hampshire. The task of Operation Enigma was to examine 200 unsolved murders of women over the previous decade and to look for possible connections between them. Operation Enigma looked into the cases of Maria Rakana and Linda Donaldson to ascertain if the murders had been committed by the same person. Techniques developed by the FBI were employed including geographical and psychological profiling. A third murder in the proximity was also compared with the other two cases. 
it occurred just a little over half a year after Maria Ricana was killed and bore similarities in the ferocity of the attack. 42-year-old Veronica Anderson lived in Hadfield Close, Widnes, with her seven-year-old son. Widnes is a 40-minute drive southeast from the centre of Manchester. Her grown-up daughter, who she was very close to, lived nearby. Veronica, who often went by the shortened version of Vera, was described as a generous, social person who had lots of friends and no enemies. Veronica was not a sex worker. She ran a small business with her adult daughter, supplying sandwiches to local shops and factories. Her social life centred around the Roll-In Motel, which was a truck stop for commercial vehicle drivers who crossed back and forth the country in droves. Veronica was a regular at the bar at the motel and would visit two or three times a week, sometimes with her adult daughter. She would occasionally do washing for the drivers and would often sell little hand-knitted rabbits that she had made to customers in the bar. The drivers would buy them for their lorry cabs or for their children back home. Veronica was divorced and in the past she'd had a few long-term relationships with truckers she met at the Rollin Motel. According to unsolvedmurders.co.uk, at the time of her death, Veronica had a casual boyfriend who would stay with her on Friday nights. The rest of the week, he lived away with his wife and family. On the evening of August 24th, 1991, on bank holiday weekend, Veronica was at home when she received a phone call from someone. Police do not know who made this call or what they said, but they believe it to be highly significant. Later that evening, Veronica made plans to go out. She dropped her son at a neighbour's, asking if she could look after him for ten minutes. She told the neighbour that she needed to go and pick up her brother. This wasn't true, and the neighbour suspected it wasn't, as Veronica would always refer to her brothers by name. Veronica left in her Ford Cortina, but before she did, she unloaded the boot of the car. At 10.30pm, a witness saw a woman, matching Veronica's description, in the Crown and Cushion pub on Warrington Road, Penketh. This venue was just five minutes away from Veronica's house, but despite the proximity, Veronica was not a regular there. The witness saw the woman come into the pub and look around for someone. The next time she looked, Veronica had her back to her and she was talking to someone, but the witness couldn't see who it was. The person she was talking to must have been expecting her, as Veronica had a drink and she hadn't been to the bar herself to purchase one. Another witness in the pub, who was a regular, noticed Veronica enter the pub and said she seemed to be looking at the people at the bar. The next time he noticed the woman, she was in conversation with a man. The witness said it looked as though they knew each other, but not like they were a couple. The man was described as being 5 foot 8 or 172 centimetres, with mousy ginger hair and a moustache. He looked in his 30s or possibly 40s. No one saw the pair leave the pub, but they had gone by closing time. At 11pm, a man who lived behind the old tannery works on Tannery Lane, just a couple of minutes drive from the pub, looked out his window. This was something he did every night, as he kept racing pigeons and was keeping an eye out for cats. The man noticed a car parked in the old tannery works, with its headlights on. The area was associated with drug use. Two and a half hours later, a couple walking home from a night out noticed a car in the same spot. At 3.15am, a group of neighbours out chasing a gang of thieves who had been attempting a break-in came upon the car. At the same time, a police officer who had been dispatched due to the reports of thieves in the area 
saw the car and investigated. Inside, he found the body of Veronica Anderson. Veronica's neck had been cut. There was no evidence of sexual assault or robbery, and police could not work out a motive for Veronica's murder. It was speculated that the motive may have been jealousy because she had spurned the advances of whoever she had met that night. On the BBC's Crime Watch programme in November 1991, it was said Veronica's decision to go out so late and leave her son with a neighbour was uncharacteristic, and it was believed Veronica knew her killer and had met the person before. Several clues were left at the scene, including a piece of white cord, believed to have been made in Italy, and a white minac glove. This type of glove is made from cotton and is used by people with dermatitis or for handling sensitive items. There was a blood stain on the glove and it was believed to have been in contact with Veronica. Police said the cord and gloves may well have been used by Veronica's killer in the course of their job. A taxi driver contacted police to say that he had picked up a man in Warrington Road, Penketh, just a kilometre or so from the murder scene and the Crown and Cushion pub. The man asked to be taken to the Halton View area, only a hundred metres from where Veronica lived. The man, who was said to be in his thirties, wore a raincoat and had an injured right hand. A handkerchief had been wrapped around it as a bandage and his knuckles were clearly grazed. Police urged this man to come forward. Strangely, a shopkeeper gave information that a man and small child had brought some wool that they said was for Veronica Anderson. This event occurred during the day of August 24, 1991. Veronica was found in the early hours of August 25th. The man was described as being 45 and 6 foot or 183 centimetres tall. He had short brown hair and a thick moustache and spoke with a local accent. He wore a shirt, tie and jacket. The child was a girl, aged around eight, with shoulder-length hair. All these clues did not lead to the case being solved and there continued to be a lot of speculation in the press about whether Veronica Anderson, Linda Donaldson and Maria Rakenna were the victims of a serial killer they dubbed the East Lanx Ripper. In the late 1990s, when Operation Enigma released its findings, the links between Maria Rakenna and Linda Donaldson's cases were deemed to be sufficiently strong to suggest they could have been killed by the same person. The connections with Veronica's murder were said to be much weaker. On the 23rd of March 2022, two people were arrested on suspicion of the murder of Veronica Anderson. A 72-year-old man from Widnes and a 61-year-old woman from Warrington were taken into custody by Cheshire Police and questioned by detectives. Two days later, both were released under investigation, with inquiries said to be ongoing. Since then, there has been no update by police on this matter. Over the years, two suspects have been named in connection with Linda Donaldson's case, and one of those has also been questioned about the murder of Maria Rakenna. Former soldier... Duncan Munro McLucky was jailed for life in 1989 for the brutal murder of 42-year-old Sylvia Harding. Sylvia was a sex worker in Manchester. McLucky attacked Sylvia while they were parked in his car in an alleyway close to Manchester city centre. He stabbed her through the heart seven times with a meat skewer. When police caught up with McClucky, they found a killing kit in the boot of his red Saab. It included skewers, a claw hammer, a black hood, gloves, plastic bin bags and a wooden spindle, 
believed to be used to tighten a garrote. A briefcase was also found, containing two Ace of Spade cards. Police speculated that McClucky may have planned on using these as his calling card. There is very little information about Duncan McClucky. He is not a suspect in Maria Rokena's murder or that of Veronica Anderson, as by that time he was already behind bars. While on paper, McLucky looks a good suspect, no evidence has been produced that he did kill Linda. Whether he had killed other people before Sylvia Hardin is not known. One incident from when McLucky was a younger man was investigated. During his time in the army, he was involved in the shooting of a fellow soldier. Ulster Defence Regiment Warrant Officer Bernard Adamson was shot by McClucky in a shooting rage incident in County Fermanagh in 1972. At the time, an open verdict was pronounced, but the matter was looked into again after McClucky was convicted for Sarah Hardin's murder. In 2011, after a lengthy inquiry, Bernard Adamson's death was ruled an accident. Another convicted killer has been looked into and questioned about the murders of both Linda Donaldson and Maria Rokena. Lorry driver David Smith is currently serving a life sentence for the 1999 murder of Amanda Walker. The 21-year-old was found buried in a shallow grave in the Royal Horticultural Society Gardens in Wisley, Surrey. Amanda was found six weeks after going missing. Smith was known to hang out at the beauty spot, popular with lovers, to surreptitiously watch others have sex. Amanda was a sex worker and was killed and mutilated by Smith to satiate his sexual perversion. Amanda, who was from Swarcliffe in Leeds, had been desperately trying to leave sex work. Smith had been cleared at the Old Bailey of a similar murder of 33-year-old Sarah Kremp in 1993. Smith admitted to paying Sarah for sex on the night she died, but denied murder. On that occasion, Smith's legal team argued that the police had led an incompetent investigation and even accused them of suppressing evidence. There was enough doubt to force an acquittal. After Smith walked free, police closed the case, saying they were not looking for anyone else in connection with Sarah's murder. Smith, who was an imposing figure at 6 foot 3 or 190 centimetres and 114 kilograms, was known as Lurch and the Honey Monster by work colleagues due to his size and quiet speech. Most people who came across David Smith thought of him as a quiet, well-spoken, hard-working man. Underneath that facade lay a sadistic sexual predator. At the age of 20, he was convicted and spent four years in prison for the rape of a young mother. He attacked her in front of her two small children. After leaving prison, he worked as a minicab driver and attacked a female passenger. He was charged with unlawful imprisonment, but I'm not sure how, was given only a suspended sentence. Smith was also arrested and charged with attempting to stab and rape a woman, but he was never convicted, as the survivor did not turn up at the trial to give evidence. At the time he murdered Amanda Walker, 43-year-old Smith ran his own escort agency, He hired out women for sex for £250 a time, keeping a large cut for himself. Smith picked up Amanda Walker in the Paddington area of London after attending what the prosecutor at Smith's 1999 trial called a party for broad-minded adults held in Ilford, Essex. After having sex with Amanda, he killed her and buried her body in a location he knew well. He dumped her bloodstained clothes close to where he lived. 
Police arrested Smith before Amanda's body was found. His name was on the list of sex offenders living in the area where her clothes were found. He was also identified by a witness as the man who picked Amanda up in Paddington. DNA evidence sealed the conviction as his blood was found on Amanda's clothing. Despite denying having anything to do with the murder, he boasted to his cellmate about the crime. The cellmate, who was a convicted sex offender himself, was horrified at the details of the crime. Just to warn you, these details are particularly disturbing. Smith told his cellmate that he had cut Amanda's private parts, both before and after sex with her. Smith was a highly accomplished martial artist and understood how to inflict pain and kill someone. He used his hand to close Amanda's nose and mouth. It was a terrifying and brutal death. It transpired that he had wrapped Amanda in cling film before instigating the sexual assault and had also put leaves into her mouth to prevent her from screaming. Sarah Crump, who Smith was acquitted of killing in 1993, was a psychiatric nurse from Lincoln. She also worked at night for an escort agency. Sarah was stabbed and disemboweled in her own home in Southall, London, in August 1991. What is most disturbing is that Sarah was found with mutilations that matched the scarring pattern left by an operation on a woman Smith had once been infatuated with. The woman, known only as Janet, had not reciprocated his interest. After Smith's conviction in 1999, police thought they may have caught a serial killer similar to Peter Sutcliffe. There was a strong possibility that David Smith could be responsible for the deaths of other women over the previous decade or more. They were particularly interested in looking at him in connection with the unsolved murders of sex workers. In 2008, a source told the Daily Mail that police were hoping to convict David Smith for the murders of Sarah Kremp, who he was acquitted of killing in 1993, Linda Donaldson in 1988, and Maria Christina Rakena in 1991. Police took moulds of Smith's extra-large size 14 feet to compare to shoe prints found at the murder scenes. Apparently, when Smith was told about this, he was extremely angry. Despite this promising lead, Smith has not been charged in connection with any of the aforementioned murders. Now aged 66, he remains in prison. In 2018, the North York's Inquirer published a series of articles about convicted killer Christopher Halliwell by former Norfolk Police Intelligence Officer and current true crime author Chris Clark and freelance journalist Tim Hicks. Persons unknown has come across the work of Chris Clark in previous episodes. He is a somewhat controversial character who has put forward theories about numerous unsolved murders. He has written books on serial killers such as Angus Sinclair and Robert Black. Christopher Halliwell is someone who has also been mentioned in more than one previous episode of Persons Unknown. Halliwell is behind bars for the 2003 murder of 20-year-old Becky Godden Edwards and the 2011 murder of 22-year-old Sean O'Callaghan. Both women were from Swindon, Wiltshire, in the west of England. Stephen Fulcher, who was the detective that arrested Halliwell, believes him to be a serial killer, and says he pretty much admitted to that during the conversations that they had together. When first in custody, Halliwell joked that if police knew the truth, they would be investigating him for eight murders police found a dump site used by Halliwell, which included 60 items of women's clothing, including some that belonged to his known victims. A boot belonging to Sean O'Callaghan and a cardigan worn by Becky Godden Edwards. The other items have not been identified. 
in one of the North York Enquirer articles titled Christopher Halliwell, The Secret Murders. Clark and Hicks looked at other potential unsolved murders Halliwell may be responsible for. As part of their analysis, they examined a total of seven murders in the northwest of England they believed had the hallmarks of Halliwell's involvement. Four of the murders they looked at comprise what have become known as the East Lanx Ripper cases. These are the murders of Linda Donaldson, Maria Christina Rakana, Veronica Anderson, and a fourth, Julie Finley. I believe Julie Finley's case was looked into by Operation Enigma in connection with the other cases, but I can find no sources that mention it when the findings of the operation were announced. 23-year-old Julie Finley's body was found at lunchtime on August 6th, 1994. It was discovered by a cyclist in a carrot field on the St Helens bound side of the Rainford Bypass, A570. It was a stone's throw from the Wheatsheaf pub. The cyclist was warming up for a time trial that was about to start and had gone into the field to relieve himself. The A570 carriageway dissects the East Lanx Road at Windle. This is about a half an hour drive from Lee where the bodies of Linda Donaldson and Maria Rakena were found. Police did not believe Julie was killed at the spot her body was found. Julie had been strangled and was found laying face downwards with her head hidden under some bushes. Like Maria Rakena and Linda Donaldson, she was naked and her clothes could not be found. A week later, police received a call saying that a pile of clothes had been seen on the corner of Low Hill and Prescott Street. This is in the red light district of Prescott. The town is about 10 kilometres south of where Julie's body was found. When police went to the spot, all they found was a bra that they believed did belong to Julie. The rest of the clothes were gone. Police speculated that someone may have found the clothes and taken them as they were in good condition. They have never been recovered. Julie Finley was last seen at 11.05pm on August 5th, 1994. She was in Pembroke Place near Liverpool Royal University Teaching Hospital. She was seen talking to a man in his 20s or 30s of average build and height by a set of railings. Another witness saw Julie arguing with a man outside the Wheatsheaf pub in Penketh, which was only 50 metres from where her body was later found. The man was trying to convince Julie to get into a white transit van. A van matching this description was seen near the field where she was found. Julie was not a sex worker, although she did have friends who did this type of work. Some reports say she was a drug user. A sex worker came forward to say on the night Julie was killed, she had turned down a man looking for sex near where Julie was last seen. The woman did not like the look of this man. The police investigation concentrated on the red light district in Liverpool, in particular Canning Street and Catherine Street, which is where Linda Donaldson was last seen alive. Around the time of Julie's murder, four other violent but non-fatal attacks were reported by sex workers in the area. In October 1994, a sex worker came to police to tell them about a client who picked her up in Toxteth, Liverpool, and drove her ten minutes down the road to Riverside Drive. The man grabbed her around the throat and threatened to kill her. He told her he had killed a sex worker two months ago. The woman immediately thought of Julie Finlay. She was terrified, but managed to escape. She described the man as around 30 years old, heavily built and around 95 kilograms, with a distinctive dagger and snake tattoo on his left forearm. The man spoke with a Liverpudlian accent 
and drove a Vauxhall Cavalier with a registration beginning M83. A month later, in November 1994, a woman contacted the police after seeing a poster of Julie Finlay in the Liverpool Echo. The woman said she was almost positive she had seen Julie on Friday August the 5th running across Pembroke Place opposite the dental hospital in Liverpool. The woman said she had been driving down the road and had almost hit the woman she believed was Julie with her car. Julie was running towards a man who was standing by some railings. A car, possibly belonging to the man, was parked nearby. This man is described as being between 5 feet 10 and 6 feet, or 178 and 183 centimetres, with dark hair and wearing dark clothing. The very specific age given for the man is 23. Almost a year after the murder, another lead was developed after an anonymous caller contacted police and described an unsettling account of picking up a hitchhiker from the St Helens area. St Helens is a 15-minute drive from the centre of Liverpool. The hitchhiker said he was going to visit his grandfather in the Ainsdale area. As they were driving past the location where Julie's body was found, the hitchhiker became very distressed and agitated. He told the caller that near the time of the murder he had broken down on his motorbike and had pulled over into a lay-by near the field where Judy's body was found. A white van was also parked there and he could hear screams and bangs coming from inside the vehicle. He went over and opened the rear door to see a naked woman who repeatedly asked him to help her. A man then came over and told him the woman was his girlfriend and he should mind his own business. The man did so, but had felt guilty ever since. According to information given on BBC's Crime Watch programme in November 1995, police believed this story rang true, but noted that the hitchhiker himself had not contacted the police. The police suggested that some of the information he gave meant that he was either the last person to see Julie alive or he was himself the killer. The hitchhiker was described as 5 foot 8 or 172 centimetres and clean cut with short blonde hair in a crew cut. In 2018, Senior Investigating Officer Detective Inspector Colin Renison told the North York's Inquirer that police were keen to speak to a woman who called them days after Julie's murder. She called herself Tina and said she was a friend of Julie. On the night she died, Julie had told Tina she was going to Prescott to meet a taxi driver. As I've mentioned, Prescott is just 10 kilometres south of where Julie's body was found. Over the years, there have been 20 arrests made in connection with Julie's murder, but no one has ever been charged. After studying all four murders, Chris Clark and Tim Hicks believe that Veronica Anderson's murder can be dismissed as being linked to Christopher Halliwell. Veronica was killed in her car, and police have always suspected that she knew her attacker. Clark and Hicks do not believe it fits Halliwell's M.O. The cases of Linda Donaldson, Maria Rakenna and Julie Finley, they believe are connected and are all the work of Christopher Halliwell. They put forward the following arguments to back up this assertion. Regarding Linda Donaldson, Halliwell did live in the Liverpool area for a time. A witness spoken to by the Daily Mirror said Halliwell had lived in Orton, Lancashire, at the time Linda was killed. This is only a 25-minute drive from where Linda was last seen. As I have mentioned before on Persons Unknown, Halliwell was a narrowboat or barge enthusiast and took holidays on the 200-kilometre Leeds and Liverpool Canal. The canal was only five kilometres from the site where Linda's body was found. 
Linda's body had been washed down, and Halliwell had proven, after the murder of Sean O'Callaghan, that he was forensically aware. In that instance, he burnt all his clothes and destroyed the seat covers from his car. Linda's abduction and murder also went across police regions, which is similar to Halliwell's known crimes. He knew this would cause disruption and possibly slow down the investigation. Linda's body was savagely mutilated with a large knife, and it is known that Halliwell trained as a butcher when he was a young man. In the case of Marina Christina Rakenna, Halliwell was known to holiday on the Rochester Canal. This waterway goes into Manchester city centre, very close to the location where Maria worked and was last seen. Her body was left in Pennington Flash, which is only half a kilometre from Pennington Marina on the Leeds and Liverpool Canal. There is a good chance that Halliwell was familiar with Pennington Flash, as he may have gone fishing there when he lived in Liverpool, or visited it while his narrowboat was moored at nearby Pennington Marina. Halliwell had worked as a refuse collector, and Maria's body was found a couple of kilometres from a council tip and recycling centre. Maria's body had been dismembered. Likewise, a previous victim of Halliwell, Becky Godden-Edwards, was also dismembered. Finally, moving on to Julie Finley's case. Julie was seen talking to an unidentified man by some railings, whose description approximately matched that of Halliwell, who was in his late 20s at the time. As I just mentioned, police received a phone call from a woman called Tina, who said Julie had been going to meet a taxi driver in Prescott. Halliwell worked as a taxi driver, and Julie's body was found just 10 kilometres from Prescott. Halliwell has been proven to have owned in the region of 200 vehicles through his life, including a white transit van, like the one seen near where Julie went missing, and near the field where her body was found. Clark and Hicks seem to be under the assumption that Julie Finley was a sex worker. This contradicts many other sources, which say that Julie was friends with women who were sex workers, but not one herself. They suggest that Halliwell could have been a regular client. Halliwell was a regular client of Becky Godden Edwards, who he murdered in 2003. Julie's body was found within 20 kilometres of the Leeds and Liverpool Canal. Like Maria and Linda, Julie's body was left in a rural location, something that Halliwell favoured in the crimes he is known to have committed. Chris Clark and crime writer Bethan Truman expanded on these theories in their 2021 book, The New Millennium Serial Killer. In total, they link Halliwell to 27 unsolved murders or missing persons cases. Of the four cases connected with the theory of the East Lanks Ripper, Veronica's is the one that seems to be the outlier, and the prevailing thought is that it is not connected with the others. Whether the murders of Linda Donaldson, Maria Rackenna, and Judy Finley were at the hands of the same person is still open for debate. It's important to remember, police have said there are no forensic links between them. Interestingly, in a 2013 Manchester Evening News article, head of the cold case unit at Greater Manchester Police, Martin Bottomley, confirmed that forensic material did exist in the Maria Rakenna and Linda Donaldson cases. The details of this have not been expanded on. Regardless of whether they are connected, all four women deserve to have justice. The shaming and blaming of victims is evident in a lot of the reporting of these unsolved murders. Police in recent years have tried to distance themselves from this attitude and have been keen to reiterate that the cases are open and will remain so. If you have any information about the unsolved murders of Linda Donaldson, Maria Christina Rakenna, Veronica Anderson 
or Julie Finley, you can contact the Greater Manchester Police Cold Case Unit on 01618 565 961 or contact Crime Stoppers anonymously on 0800 555 111.